The Battle of Ulundi, fought on the 4th of July 1879, was the final battle of the Anglo-Zulu War. The British victory brought an end to the independent Kingdom of the Zulus established by Shaka. Over 1,500 Zulu warriors died that morning, defending the old Zulu order. The Battle of Ulundi brought to a close a war that in many respects should never have been fought. The Zulu king Keshweo had previously had good relations with the British. Indeed, the British had supported him in the civil war where he had come to power in the early 1870s, and they had attended his coronation. I'll upload a talk about the war, a war contrived by the British, shortly. The campaign hadn't gone the way the British commander, Lord Chelmsford, had intended. The Zulu army had inflicted a crushing defeat on the British at the Battle of Isandwana, fought on the 22nd of January, 1879. Almost the entire British garrison of over a thousand men had been annihilated. The gallant defence of the mission station at Rourke's Drift, made famous in the film Zulu, couldn't cover up the embarrassment of that defeat, despite all the Victoria Crosses that were awarded. Eventually, Chelmsford extricated all his remaining forces from Zululand back into the British colony of Natal and licked his wounds. His reputation was in tatters, and he was desperate to take revenge. Fortunately for him, whilst the British public and their government probably didn't care too much for his reputation, they did want to avenge the defeat of their soldiers at Isandwana. The British Parliament approved funding for a huge army to be sent to South Africa to finish off the job, i.e. to defeat the Zulus. Eventually, Chelmsford's army swelled to 17,000, and in April 1879, he re-invaded. The main line of attack came from the west. A flying column under a shanty ring member, Sir Evelyn Wood, combined with the 2nd Division, nominally under General Newdigate, but accompanied by Chelmsford himself, headed for the Zulu capital at Alundi, or Ondini. Despite his victory at Isandwana, King Keshaweo was still trying to find a way of preserving his independence, and so he held back from attacking the British. Not that the British advance was incident-free. On the 1st of June, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, the exiled Prince Imperial of France, who was accompanying the invasion, was ambushed by a party of Zulus and killed. Hardly a major defeat, but for a man trying to repair his tattered reputation, it wasn't the PR Lord Chelmsford needed. I've made a video all about that story too. There's a link in the description. Check it out at the end. Worse for the British commander was a telegram from London informing him that he was to be replaced by the star of the Victorian British Army, General Sir Garnet Wolseley. Chelmsford now had a race against time. He had to decisively defeat King Keshaweo's army before Wolseley arrived to claim the glory. By the 30th of June, the 2nd Division and Evelyn Wood's flying column were advancing together up the valley of the White Umfalosi towards the Zulu capital of Ulundi. Staying on the south side of the river, Chelmsford established a camp protected by stone walls whilst he assessed his next move. Keshweo was now desperate to make peace and sent emissaries bearing the Prince Imperial's sword and gifts of cattle. Chelmsford refused to negotiate. Only one thing mattered, a complete military victory over the Zulus to erase the blot of Isandwana that was against his name. He demanded that the Zulu king return all the guns captured at Isandwana within three days, and surrender one of his regiments. Logistically, Keshweo was unable to do the first, and politically, there was no way he was willing to do the second, which is exactly why Chelmsford had demanded them. Even now, the king looked to stop the inevitable battle, sending a large herd of prized white cattle towards the British camp. If, however, the king wanted some form of peace, his warriors didn't. 
they stop the cattle and turn them round before they could even get across the river. Not that Chelmsford would have accepted them. He knew what he wanted. On the 3rd of July, Lord Chelmsford ordered Sir Redvers Buller to conduct a reconnaissance in force across the river. At 1.30 in the afternoon, Buller, together with 500 irregular mounted men, left the protected encampment. His aim was twofold. Firstly, to clear Zulu sharpshooters from a knoll across the river who had been firing on the British camp and on the men going down to get water from the White Umfalozi. Secondly, to work out the best ground on which to fight the battle the next day. Swiftly clearing the knoll of snipers, Buller now set out for a hill in the mid-distance, about two miles from Keshwayo's capital. As they made their way through the undergrowth, a group of Zulus suddenly sprung up and started to run back towards Alundi, driving a herd of goats ahead of them. The mounted irregulars, as had often been the case in this war, gave chase. As they galloped after the Zulus, Buller's sixth sense kicked in. The herd boys were moving just a little bit too slowly for terrified youngsters. He bellowed an order for his men to stop, and at that moment, some 4,000 Zulu warriors rose from the long grass around them, forming a semicircle. Even as Redford's bullers gathered his men, the Zulus started to advance in their traditional fighting formation of the charging bull, the two flanks, or horns, moving swiftly to encircle them. Ordering his men to fire from their saddles, a task which is a lot harder to perform than films would make you think, he steered his men towards the narrow opening. An opening that was getting narrower with every second. The war cries of thousands of enraged Zulus panicked the horses, who threw some of their riders. The fire from the British was met by counterfire from the advancing Zulus. As they careered away from the charging Zulus, Sergeant Fitzmaurice's horse was hit and tumbled to the ground. Morris had previously served with the 1st Battalion of the 24th Foot, but had transferred to the Mounted Infantry. Now he was pinned to the ground by his stricken horse as the Zulus rushed towards him. Dazed, he somehow managed to stagger to his feet, but there was no way that he could outrun the athletic Zulu warriors. His plight was spotted by Captain Lord William Beresford. Beresford, or to give him his full name, Lord William Leslie de la Poor Beresford, love to see that one fit on a credit card, was yet another one of those incredible Anglo-Irish officers who served in the British Army during the 19th century. Born in Armagh in 1847, the 32-year-old cavalry officer had been the ADC to the Viceroy of India when the Zulu War broke out and had requested a transfer to South Africa. A noted equestrian, Beresford turned his horse and galloped back to the stranded Fitzmaurice. He grabbed the sergeant, but the day soldier was so confused he couldn't raise himself up into Beresford's saddle. With the Zulus now yards away, another trooper rode to their aid, Sergeant Edmund O'Toole. Reining up by the two men, he opened fire on the closest Zulus, momentarily checking their advance. It was all the time Beresford needed to get the dazed Fitzmaurice up onto his saddle. Now the three men, on two horses, turned and spurred away. As they galloped, Fitzmaurice fainted, nearly pulling Beresford off his horse. Somehow, they managed to catch up with Buller's retreating party. Both Beresford and O'Toole were to be awarded the Victoria Cross for saving Sergeant Fitzmaurice. Interestingly, the award was initially only given to Beresford. When he was presented with the medal by Queen Victoria later that year, Beresford informed her that he would refuse the honour unless O'Toole was similarly recognised. And he was. As an interesting side note, Lord William Beresford VC's brother was Captain Charles Beresford of the Royal Navy. Now, if some of my regular viewers and listeners are thinking, hmm, that name rings a bell, it might very well do from some of my stories from Sudan. Because just a few years later, 
Brother Charles would accompany Sir Garnet Wolseley's Nile expedition, attempting to rescue General Gordon in Khartoum. At the Battle of Abu Klea, it was Charles Beresford's antics running out his gardener gun out of the square that allowed the Mardis warriors to pour in. Anyway, back to Zululand, 1879. Sergeant Fitzmaurice had had a lucky escape from the Zulus. Another mountain ban was not so lucky. Trooper Rubenheim also took a tumble. Yet again, one of his fellow mounted men went back to rescue him. In this case, 29-year-old New Zealand-born Captain Cecil Darcy. A member of the Frontier Light Horse, he'd already seen action at Khobani, where he'd gone back to rescue stricken comrades on that occasion too. In the process, he'd been unseated and had to be rescued by none other than Sir Redvers Buller himself. Darcy had been recommended for the Victoria Cross, but had been turned down higher up the chain of command. Interestingly, Buller was awarded the Victoria Cross for rescuing Darcy. Now, once again, Darcy was spurring his horse back towards the oncoming Zulus. Leaping off, he tried to push Rubenheim up into the saddle. In those terrifying moments as the Zulus closed, his horse reined up, throwing both men to the ground. As he now tried to control his horse, Darcy pulled his back. Somehow he managed to pull himself up into the saddle, but with his back in agony, he didn't have the strength to pull his comrade up. Reluctantly, he turned away and left Rubenheim to his fate. I guess it wasn't for lack of trying, and it was the second time in which he'd gone back to rescue a comrade. And despite not saving Rubenheim, Captain Darcy was to receive the Victoria Cross. Probably, Buller felt he owed him one for his previous unrewarded exploits. With the Transvaal Rangers providing covering fire, Buller was able to get almost all his men back across the White Omphalosi and into the safety of Lord Chelmsford's camp. Despite the close shave that the mounted men had just had with the Zulus, the action created a buoyant mood in the camp. If anyone doubted whether the Zulus had any fight left in them, here was the answer. There would be a battle the next day. That night must have seemed a very long one for the men in the British camp. A full moon lit up the sky, and across the few miles from Ulundi, they could hear the war songs of the gathering Zulu regiments. Rivali was sounded before dawn. A mist covered the ground, rising up from the river. Chelmsford's column, consisting of 4,100 British and 1,100 African troops, prepared to move off. Buller was once more sent forward, this time to secure a crossing across the river. Fanning out on the far bank, Buller's men strained to hear or see the enemy. Nothing. The British infantry and the Natal native contingent now began to wade across the river. Still in the growing dawn, a Zulu dawn, they could see nothing of the thousands of warriors they knew were waiting for them. By 7.30am, the British force was across the river, and Chelmsford formed them into a giant square, which started to move towards the higher ground that Buller had identified the previous day. The front of the square advancing on the Zulu capital was comprised of the 80th Regiment, along with two Gatling guns and four cannon. It was the first time that Gatling guns had been used in a battle by the British Army. The 80th would shortly afterwards become the 2nd Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment, now part of the Mercian Regiment. The left-hand side of the square, left-hand if you're part of the British force moving forward, consisted of the 90th Regiment of Foot, plus four companies of the 94th. The right-hand side was comprised of the 13th, later the Somerset Light Infantry, and the 58th Regiment of Foot, who would later form the 2nd Battalion of the Northamptonshires. Finally, the rear of the square 
consisted of two more companies of the 94th, along with the 21st Regiment of Foot, who became the Royal Scots Fusiliers. The 21st had unfurled their regimental colours. Little did they know it would be the last time a British regiment carried their colours into battle. So, an interesting little piece of history at the Battle of Ulundi. Last time the colours were carried into battle, and the first time a Gatling gun was used against an enemy. It's like a transition moment in the history of the British Army. In the centre of the square were the 2nd Battalion of the Natal Native Contingent, and the 5th Company Royal Engineers. The latter, commanded by Lieutenant John Chard VC, who'd commanded the garrison at the Battle of Rourke's Drift. And also inside the square with the 17th Lancers and Lord Chelmsford and his staff. Outside the square, well for the time being, were the mounted irregulars under Buller, scouting for the Zulus and providing a mobile advance guard on the flanks. When Lord Chelmsford reached that high ground that Buller had identified the day before, about two miles from Olundi, he paused. Now with daylight increasing, the British could see thousands of Zulus gathering on the nearby hills. This was the whole Zulu army, 20,000 strong, forming up for one last decisive battle to defend their homeland and the old Zulu order. Here were the remnants of the regiments who had triumphed at the Battle of Isandwana. Here too the survivors of Rourke's Drift, and warriors who had faced the withering fire of the British at Kambula and Gingilovu. Experienced, battle-hardened, but battle-weary too, their numbers badly depleted by previous battles with the British. But despite all of that, they were here again for one last push. And alongside them were younger regiments, not worldly-wise like these veterans, but keen and eager. Now for one last time, they advanced. They came on at a trot, and the British in the square heard the ominous hum of thousands of warriors and the rattle of assegais hitting the back of the rawhide shields. Sounds that had terrified the Zulu's enemies ever since the time of the great Chaka Zulu himself. At around 8.20am, they were in range of Buller's mounted irregulars. Buller, as he'd done at the Battle of Kambula, now used his mounted riflemen to goad the Zulu impi into attacking. Time and again they would fire and then retreat a short distance and fire again. And just as he had intended, the Zulu army had had enough, and with a roar, they charged. Each side of the British square was four deep. The first two rows knelt, whilst the last two stood tall. They opened fire at 2,000 yards, almost the maximum range of their Martini Henry rifles. At that range their fire didn't stop the impi, but as the Zulus closed to within about 400 yards of the square, they ran into a metaphoric brick wall of rifle, gatling gun and artillery fire. Zulu survivors told of the incessant noise and smoke of the battle. There seemed to be no way forward. Warriors took shelter behind the rocks and in the vegetation. Some tried to crawl on their hands and knees towards their enemy. The vulnerable points of Inni Square were the corners, and the Zulu left horn now charged towards the southwest corner of the square. Chelmsford shouted to the men of the 90th who were holding that vital point, Can't you fire faster? In desperation, he ordered the Royal Engineers to move up to support them. Their intervention was timely, and the left horn fell back under a withering fire. That morning, not a single Zulu got within 30 yards of the British square. The only British casualties were caused by Zulu rifle fire, and they were a scant comparison to the destruction being brought on the Zulu army. One officer who was hit, although merely grazed, was Lieutenant Milne. This Royal Navy officer had been on attachment to Chelmsford since the very outset of the war. 
It was Milne who'd watched the Campa de Sandwana through his naval telescope and reported that he couldn't see anything wrong back on that fateful day in January. After half an hour, the Zulu warriors had had enough. Around them, hundreds of their comrades lay dead or dying. They fell back. Seeing his enemy retiring, Lord Chelmsford now ordered the back of the square, manned by the 21st Regiment, to part, and ordered his cavalry, both the lancers and bullers mounted infantry, to clear the field. A cheer went up from the square as the 17th lowered their lances and charged at the retreating Zulus. For the next two hours, the mounted troops cleared the landscape of the Zulus all the way to and beyond Alundi itself. Meanwhile, the Natal native contingent had left the safety of the square and were mopping up Zulu survivors hiding in the undergrowth or lying wounded in the long grass. The Battle of Ulundi was over. It was a one-sided battle. Unlike previous battles, where they had significantly outnumbered the British, here the Zulus had only had a two-to-one advantage. And that, quite frankly, was not enough when faced by 4,000 rifles, Gatling guns and artillery placed in a solid square. It shows how one-sided this battle was, that of the 23 Victoria Crosses awarded in the Zulu War, none were awarded at Ulundi. With their defeat at the Battle of Ulundi, the ability and also the will of the Zulu army was broken. The mighty army of Shaka would never again take the field in anything like these numbers. When the British entered Keshweo's capital, they found it deserted. There was no sign of the Zulu leader, who'd actually left before the battle. All they found in his hut was a photo of his coronation and a crown given to him by the British on that occasion, less than a decade beforehand, when the British had supported his ascension to the throne. History is full of twists and turns. Implacable enemies become allies, friends become foes. To the very end, Keshweo could never quite get his head round how the events had taken such a disastrous route. Job completed, Chelmsford reformed his square and they retraced their steps back to the encampment on the other side of the Waitungfalosi, whilst the band played Royal Britannia. They left behind them a burning Zulu capital. 35,000 spent Martini Henry cartridges, and just 10 of their number dead. In the long grass around the square, and for several miles further, lay over 1,500 Zulus, who had died bravely fighting for their homeland and the old Zulu order. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope you enjoyed that story about the Battle of Ulundi. And if you like my work, then why not join my supporters club? Find out more by clicking on the link in the description too. Plenty more stories coming your way, including the Battle of Majuba. I'm also working on one about British imperialist Cecil Rhodes, plus a few more on the Zulu War. In the meantime, thanks for your support, keep well, and I'll see you very soon.